0: So we are, uh, we're a little sparser this morning, which means one of three things. Um, it's Valentine's Day, and uh, we have some hopeless romantics in our church. Uh, I did a terrible job teaching last week, or about, you know, 30% of the people are going to show up in about 10 minutes, so we'll see, we'll see what ends up happening. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll jump into things. Um, I did honestly try to come up with a Valentine's-related evangelism opening of some sort, and I failed miserably, so I'm not even going to... It's going to bury my shame and move on. Uh, Do we have anyone who uh, wants to volunteer any uh, any opportunities last week to preach the gospel to anyone? Anyone want to share if they did? No obligation and no shame if you didn't. No worries, no worries. All right, so as we mentioned last week, we want to, in each class, have a sort of weekly prayer focus for individuals in our lives that do not know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So do we have anyone who wants to volunteer who didn't name names last week that we could be praying for this morning as well as throughout the week? Any volunteers? Please. Jared uh, Hannah, Chloe. Awesome. Thank you. Anyone else? Folks we can be praying for. Lizzie. Anyone else want to volunteer? Yes, please. Um,
1: I have one of my good friends that I uh, kind of became reacquainted with the last month, and right after I became reacquainted with him, I've known, I've known him for like 15 years, but um, his uh, seven-month-old son just died, generally. so he's going through a lot of grief right now, and there's a separation between him and his wife, and so just that he'll be encouraged to put his faith in Jesus and, you know, basically... um be there for his
0: other children. Sure. What's his name? His,
1: his name is
0: Derek. Derek. Yeah. All right, so Robin, Jared, Hannah, Chloe, Julian, Carrie, and Derek. Yeah. Why don't we open up in prayer? Father, thank you for this opportunity once again to gather and to hear what you would have to say to us on the subject of evangelism. I pray that we would just have hearts that desire to proclaim our savior, that we would be used mightily by you to do that. I pray, Lord, that you would use this time to encourage and equip us, Lord. And Father, to that end, as we do gather here, I pray that you would bestow grace and repentance and faith on our loved ones, on those in our lives, Lord. And particularly, I lift up Robin, and, uh, and Jared, and Hannah, and Chloe. I pray, Lord, for their salvation. I pray for Lindy's sister, Julie, and her husband, Carrie. And of course, Lord, pray for, for Derek and his faith, and especially in light of everything going on, Lord, in, in his life, I pray that you would use that to let him see the glory and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It's in his name, Lord, that we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, if you all have handouts, uh, you'll see the very first thing on there is a summary of prior weeks. Um, I will do my best uh, to concisely summarize uh, everything that's happened in the class up until this moment. Um, So we have there the definition of evangelism. It's simply the intentional verbal communication of the gospel to someone who does not or may not know Christ for the purposes of seeing them repent and believe. Um, Second point, we evangelize for at least three reasons the joy of participating in God's work, our passion for his glory, and our love for our neighbor. And we also saw last week that evangelism is fundamentally God's work and that we are privileged to participate in it, uh, which is more fundamentally what our class is about today. Uh, The intention of this class is to cover the overall biblical context of evangelism, Uh, The premise is that God is undertaking a saving work in this world amongst mankind that we participate in. Um, We want to understand that overall mission and what our place in it is. Uh, In fact, last week we did look at uh, John chapter 4 verses 27 to 38. Uh, We pointed out last week that Jesus there subtly rebukes his disciples for their lack of proper focus and points them towards the work of saving souls. And I'm going to read a portion of that um, here. So John 4, starting in verse 32, Jesus says to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Because it's fundamentally God's work in context there. That is the, the salvation of souls. It's his work and we are fellow laborers in it. First uh, Corinthians 3, 5 through 9 is another example of it. Um, there, Paul says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are, this is verse 9, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So, Obviously, I think in context of this this passage, God is fundamentally the actor here. He's the one doing the work. He's the one that does anything that actually matters, and yet we're described as his fellow laborers. This is God's work. Salvation is God's work fundamentally. Um, What God is doing in the world overall in saving souls is God's work fundamentally, but we participate in it. So exactly what God is doing and how our personal evangelism fits in is the subject of our class this morning. Um, and there's four, uh, five objectives listed in your notes. The first one, um, and I try to get kind of cute with these, so I'll, it, it'll make sense as they go, I promise. Uh, but the first one is to review the meta narrative of Scripture. Um, the second one is to understand the goal of the shepherd. The third one is to grasp how the good shepherd gets his sheep. Fourth, see who directs the body. And then Lastly, begin to think through some implications of these things. I promise those will make sense as we go. Uh, so our first one is understand the meta-narrative of scripture. Uh, the concept of a meta-narrative really just means overall story. Um, it's really just to point out that there is an overall story to the Bible. Uh, the Bible is not a collection of random books on different subjects that happen to be grouped together. There is an overarching story or narrative that binds all of what we read together. Um, and this is an oversimplification but that overall story ultimately is God glorifying himself by accomplishing and applying salvation to those whom he chooses. The overall story of the Bible, again, an oversimplification, but that story is God glorifying himself by accomplishing and applying salvation to those whom he has chosen. Um, this is the overall story the Bible tells. And this this next section might be a little remedial, but that's OK. I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Um, you know, as you, as you kind of walk from Genesis all the way to Revelations, you see this narrative arc throughout the book. Uh, God creates the world, it's very good, and then immediately Adam sins. And the next few chapters in Genesis really are the, um, the, the, the implications of that. We see sin wasn't just a one time event, it now permeates and infects all of humanity, all of the human condition, all of the world. Um, and instead of, again, instead of focusing, so, and so and the second Adam sins, God does, however, cover Adam's sin. That immediately uh, in Genesis 3.15, there is a promise of a future remedy. We don't get much detail of what that is, uh, but there is a covering that happens. There is uh, some description of it, and it's kind of punted later Again, Genesis really traces the fall of mankind um, and the the permeation of sin into man, and things look really bad until Abraham gets on the scene. Abraham gets on the scene, and there God establishes a covenant that points back to that promise in Genesis 3.15, um, and we get a little more detail about what God is ultimately going to do in the world. Eventually, from Abraham, we get Israel and the law, um, and a couple of really great things come out of that portion of the story. Um, But I think fundamental to Israel we see the, 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 the sad reality of mankind. Uh, God can provide a perfect law. He can personally intervene to keep his people safe. He can chastise us when we go astray. He can even guide us through inspired mouthpieces called prophets. And unless he changes human nature first, none of it's going to matter. Um, and Israel is a clear picture of that reality. Uh, from Israel, we also get the promised kingdom. Um, with a perfect and righteous ruler, one who will appear twice, first to take away sins, and second to return and rule over us forever in righteousness. And then ultimately, in that narrative arc, we get the incarnation, we get the cross, and we get Jesus' resurrection, the accomplishment of everything he promised in Genesis 3.15. Um, But then the story pivots, essentially from the end of the Gospels, the beginning of Acts, on to the rest of the Bible. The story isn't about God securing salvation. It's more about God applying it, Um, and that's the part of the story that we are in. God has ultimately secured our salvation. Yes, there is a consummation. Jesus will return. He will remove death and sin from the world. He will rule over us in righteousness, but from Pentecost to that moment, it's the story of God going out and bringing a people to saving faith for his glory. Uh, Jesus tells us specifically this is what he's doing in John 10:16, 16. Um, and that's kind of where I'm getting all of my, um, my titles from in our objectives. John 10:16, he says, I am the good shepherd. I have sheep that are not part of this flock, referring to the immediate uh, people of Israel. And I have to go get them and make them one flock. I'm paraphrasing, not quoting. Um, but that's fundamentally what's happening. The good shepherd is going out and he is getting the sheep that his father has given him. That's what he's doing in the world now, and that's what we're examining in the morning. That's this. This is the overall meta narrative of the scriptures. This is the context in which our personal evangelism falls. So again, pretty basic, but just want to make sure we're on the same page. Any questions on that? Any concerns, Craig? Uh, how does
1: that tie into the uh, Great Commission and um, at Jesus' ascension? He's ruling now. You uh, reference mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. how do you see the Great Commission?
0: That's literally where we're going next, so perfect. <laughs> uh, let, me, let, me, let me get to that in just a couple of seconds, but it's, it's going to tie in. Other questions? No? OK. Well, thank you, Craig, for the, the great segue. Um, right before we get to that, though, um, I think it's important, our next point, to understand the goal of the good shepherd. Uh, before we talk about how the good shepherd gets his sheep, let's talk about what he's ultimately aiming at. Um, again, the Lord has given, has chosen some to be saved, and the good shepherd is going out and getting his sheep. He doesn't have, uh, you know, a quota, He doesn't have five million sheep, and he's not sitting around going, I like that one's coat, that one seems nice, let's bring them. No, he's got, he's got a very specific purpose in mind, ultimately. There is a very specific outcome that God's aiming at. And one of the things I love about God is that he is a God who tells us from the beginning what the end is. Uh, Isaiah 48 through 10, which is a fantastic verse in the Bible, he says, remember this and be assured, recall it to mind, you transgressors, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So God is a God who tells us the end from the beginning, so that when it happens, we know that he is who he says he is. And so if we want to see sort of what God's ultimately aiming at, we can look at the end of the story. Um, And where is that in the Bible? Revelations. So Revelations 7, 9 through 10, I think uh, repeatedly in that book, we see a picture of what God is ultimately aiming at. Uh, But 7, 9 through 10 gives us a a pretty clear look at that. Um, And there we read John saying, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. So this is the end picture. This is what God is aiming at. He is deliberately saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He is deliberately saving people from every type of division that presently exists in the world. And he's doing that, I think, to show that he transcends everything. If God had simply chosen to save Israel, if he had simply chosen to save a people based in a portion of the world, he absolutely has that right and he absolutely would be glorified in it. But I think he's he's more glorified when people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every walk of life lay down everything that they have and say, you are better than it. He is more glorified when the elect have laid down every type of false god that has existed when scores of dialects and language will be used to praise him and cultural and sinful practices and customs all across the world have been repented of his law of love tested and found infinitely better god is more glorified in this picture of people from every tribe tongue and nation coming to saving faith and so that's kind of what we're, we're talking about in terms of our overall evangelistic context Uh, we're literally now in the part of the story where God has accomplished salvation. He's applying it to his elect as part of his plan to glorify himself by bringing a people together from every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship him. So that is, in briefest form, the overall context in which our evangelism occurs. Which brings us then to Craig's question, uh, or implied question, How is it that the good shepherd accomplishes his work in getting a sheep? Uh, Before I go on, questions on anything so far? Comments? No, okay. So how does the good shepherd accomplish his work in getting his sheep? So I'm gonna give a a first answer it, I'm gonna clarify it later. But uh, for now, let's say that the good shepherd gets his sheep using other sheep. The good shepherd gets his sheep using other sheep. And so under that statement, there are three things that we're going to be looking at. Uh, The first one, there in your notes, the sheep are commanded to go and preach. And we absolutely are. Uh, We know that the good shepherd uses sheep to get his sheep because he tells those sheep to go and preach him. Uh, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the Great Commission that Craig referenced. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our risen, ascended Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the undisputed ruler of this world. All authority has been given to him and he is out getting his sheep. It is an absolute certainty. Uh, Acts 1.8 is the other passage that's worth looking at. Uh, Jesus says there, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, he's talking to the apostles, uh, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, Matthew 28 is a clear command. Acts 1, less so, but even though it's not an explicit command, I think it is meant to be taken as one. Um, Acts 1.8 is not merely predictive. Jesus is not merely saying this is what's going to happen. This is instructional. He is reinforcing what he commanded in Matthew 28. The apostles are to go out, they're to preach Christ. This is Jesus sending his flock to get his sheep. Um, notice though, for fun, both Matthew 28 and Acts 1-8 both contain global language. Um, all the nations in Matthew 28, and then Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth in Acts 1. Um, they, these passages directly tie back to what we said our goal, what God's goal is in Revelations 7. Um, Also notice, too, the specificity in the Acts passage. This is not random. Our shepherd has a plan that he is ultimately executing. He has the authority. He has the plan. He is going about doing it. So what we see here is the apostles being directed to go into the world um, and begin securing the outcome of Revelation 7. Um, But what's interesting, though, is, is how did the apostles interpret this command? What did they do? They waited, as Jesus told them, at Pentecost, they received the Holy Spirit with power, and they preached and they formed a church. That's what they did. They, they formed a church in Jerusalem, they established a church, they grew the church. Um, and the fundamental reason for that is the local church is the basic building block for all of Christianity. The New Testament does not contemplate anything spiritually happening outside and apart from healthy local bodies. And so our second point under this header is that local flocks play a key role. Um, Given that fundamental role of local churches I just mentioned, we would expect to see, and we do see, local churches playing a key role in this mission to get sheep. Again, local flocks play a a key role. The local church is God's chosen means to implement his mission. Uh, So in in the flow of the story of Acts, Again, Pentecost happens, the disciples um, receive the Holy Spirit, and they establish a church. And they stay in Jerusalem, in keeping with with Acts 1-8, until a persecution happens after Stephen's death. That's when the gospel really begins to go out into the world. And when it does, we see local churches formed. In fact, the first formal missionary uh, sending out that happens in the book of Acts that's not driven by persecution it happens in Acts 13, and how does it come about? It's Paul's mission, but it comes about by God commissioning Paul and Barnabas through a local church in Syrian Antioch, uh, Acts 13:2. Uh, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, "Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them." Again, God could have had Paul wandering in the desert and given a vision directly and said go. No, he commissions this first formal missionary work through a local church. From there, Paul goes out. He preaches city by city, proclaiming the gospel with the goal of establishing new local churches. In fact, it's really clear in the book of Acts that Paul focuses on these new local churches. His priority is making sure that they are well-established, healthy, and faithful, even at the cost of his own life. or willing to lose his life over it. Um, Acts 14, 19 to 26, a little bit of longer passage, but we read, uh, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel in that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. When they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had, uh, that they had fulfilled. Um, so right before verse 19, Paul had just gotten the, the daylights knocked out of him via stoning. I mean, he was literally dragged out of the city and left for dead. Um, and what does he do? He gets up and risks his life and goes right back into that city and preaches. Or, I'm sorry, stat, uh, um, encourages the church there. Um, and if you were looking at a map... The place where he got stoned, it's, it's not terribly far away from the, the, the city that he was commissioned out of. But rather than going that way, he goes around and back and retraces his journey. And he does that because his goal in this is not just winning individual souls. His goal in this is to establish local churches to make sure that they are well formed. He goes and he, um, he, 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 he raises up elders in each of these. He encourages them. He's preaching to them. He is forming local churches as he goes. That is fundamentally what he is out there attempting to do. Again, because the local church is the fundamental building block for everything that happens spiritually in the New Testament. Paul wants to make sure the churches he equipped were well-ordered and healthy. And he does this in part because he knows that as these churches grow, both from their version of the pulpit, whatever that looked like, as well as the individual lives of the people, that is how the evangelistic work in their region and their city is ultimately finished. This is Paul's pattern in Acts. You do not see generally Paul going into an area and preaching for 15 years in one place. Paul goes, he preaches for a while, he establishes a church and he leaves or persecution drives him out. Uh, A couple of times the Lord tells him to stay, but for the most part, that's his pattern. He is establishing a local church, and he's expecting that local church to finish the work in the area, to complete the evangelism in the area. And that cycle would repeat with local churches raising up other missionaries or supporting missionaries. Many of uh, Paul's letters in the New Testament end with thanks to the churches that he founded for supplying his needs as he is ultimately on this missionary work. Local churches raise up missionary, Act 13.2. Local churches support missionaries. They Churches are formed by missionaries. And then local churches saturate their area with the gospel, again, both through the pulpit and through individual personal evangelism. And that picture is fundamentally how the good shepherd gets his sheep. That is how the Lord brings his elect to faith. In fact, and I'm going to do one more point and then pause for, for questions and clarifications, but... Um, I think there's a point here that's worth making that I don't, I don't hear a whole lot being made, um, so I'm going to do it. Uh, not only is a local church foundational to God's saving work in the world, as we just saw, but the Bible teaches that proclaiming God's goodness is fundamental to who we are as believers. It is fundamental to who we are as believers. Um, this is item C, I think, in your notes. Sheep exist to proclaim God's goodness and grace. Yes, seven, C. Sheep exist to proclaim God's goodness and grace. Proclaiming God's goodness is foundational to who we are. It is fundamentally a part of what we exist to do. Um, I know I've rattled off a bunch of scriptures, but let's look at one together. First uh, Peter, uh, to Peter, chapter two verses nine to 10. First Peter, chapter two verses nine to 10. By the way, I saw some folks like furiously trying to find the passages that I was referencing. So I know I went fast. So I apologize for that. If you're a flipper, uh, I'll give you time to look at this one. 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. All right, so Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." So Peter's audience here, he's talking to believers, he calls them a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's own people. Notice, though, verse 9, that there's a word, that. We are these things, that Peter just mentioned, so that we might proclaim something. It's the purpose, literally that word uh, refers to purpose. It's the purpose for which we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. So we're, we're a people to proclaim something. Now, what are we supposed to be proclaiming? Uh, in the, the version I read, which is the ESV, uh, we have the word excellencies, excellencies. Um, other versions I've seen, I think, like King James might use virtue. Um, the, the word there is uh, arete, it, uh, it, and virtue is probably the closest English synonym that we have. It really means moral goodness. We're, we're, we're proclaiming God's moral goodness. So when you read the word excellencies, if you're using the ESV, think God's virtuous character, his love, his righteousness, his justice, his holiness, those, those sorts of things. Um, and, and this is, I think, reinforced by the fact that Peter links this proclamation to the fact that we are called out of darkness into light, and then in verse 10 talking about mercy. He's, he's ultimately talking about salvation here. Um, God's, uh, proclaiming God's excellencies or virtues means to proclaim God's goodness, his love, his righteousness, his holiness, his justice, his good moral character. Which kind of begs the question, to whom are we proclaiming these things? What's the, what's the intention here? Uh, is this something that I do in my own soul? Is this meant to tell me that I'm supposed to be a worshipful person? Um, that, that might be part of it, but that's not really the focus. The, the word proclaim here is exangelo, um, and it generally has the sense of a public statement. This is a public proclamation that's being made. It's not just me worshiping in a closet at home. So this is an outward-facing thing now i'd love to say this is an evangelistic passage that peter is specifically talking about you preaching the gospel to your neighbor but that's not really what he's getting at uh, evangelism corporate worship those things are included here by implication but that's not really the focus what peter's doing is bigger than that he is linking who we are to this proclamation we are a people so that we might proclaim something we Exist. I think Peter's saying we exist to proclaim God's excellencies and his moral character. So, yes, the, the, you know, worship is part of that. What we're going to be doing in about 45 minutes as a church. Um, um, it certainly includes our proclamation of God in our evangelism where we're talking about God's mercy, his grace, his perfect justice, and how he satisfies both in Jesus. Um, in worship and evangelism, we are proclaiming his excellencies. But he's talking more than just those things. Our very existence as the people of God is itself a proclamation of God's excellencies. Individually, we each were chosen when there was no goodness in us, no loveliness, no virtue. Each of us have been forgiven from the vilest of sins. Each of us is fundamentally a new creation in Christ, and each of us are clothed with a perfect righteousness that we have not earned. We are fundamentally different than what we were before. And the world may not see it, and if they do, they do not like it, but we are living, walking, breathing testimonies to God's goodness. We exist itself as a proclamation. But more than that, Peter clearly has in mind here our corporate existence. Um, It is who we are together that Peter is emphasizing. A church, Veritas, we're not a a social club. We're we're not an association of like-minded individuals. We're not a group of people who have the same taste in music and like listening to 45-minute sermons. That's that's not what the church fundamentally is. We are so much more than that. There is no group or association on this planet that is analogous to what the church actually is. And the language that Peter uses and the language that Paul uses throughout the New Testament bears this out. We are living stones in verse 5 that are being built up into a spiritual house. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in and amongst us. We are a new type of community, a a community that is the first fruits of what we're going to see when our Savior returns and removes sin and death from this world. We are a family. We're even described as the body of Jesus variously throughout the New Testament. Each local church, whether the world sees it or not, is a wonderful Truly awesome work of God, which I don't think we think about enough, and that wonderful, awesome, amazing work of God exists to showcase the excellencies of God. and the point i'm I'm laboring here, a, I just wanted to make it, but b, I think it's so 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 important that we see that our our, our existence is ultimately about telling the universe, whether they see it or like it, who God is, and that certainly includes our, our personal evangelism that certainly includes how we Uh, interact with our neighbors and our friends and our families witnessing to God's glory is built into the framework of who we are individually and corporately Um, and it's no surprise then that when you look at what the church does on a Sunday morning the gospel is built in everywhere it's built in everywhere Um, that is by the way on a practical note it is really good to invite unbelieving friends and family to church because they are ultimately inundated with the gospel um, they're inundated with the gospel. But think about what happens in that typical Sunday service. You know, our service leader stands up and leads us through a prayer of contrition, which includes the gospel. We sing songs that include the gospel. That's why we don't sing a lot of the more modern, falsely called worship music. We want songs that have the gospel baked into them. Our final prayer at the end of service, um, echoing 1 Timothy 2, is entreats God for good government so that the gospel can go forward. The sermon itself contains the gospel. We take communion, which in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 is itself a proclamation of the Lord's death until he comes. And then occasionally we even have a baptism, which not only is proclaiming God's goodness to the world. I don't know why I'm pointing over here. Um, and not only is, God's, uh, is it proclaiming God's goodness to the world by the individual's testimony, but itself is a picture of what God is doing in that, or has done in that person's life and their death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and their, their union with him. So the, the church is fundamental and indisputably important to God's evangelistic work in the world. So the shepherd gets his sheep through the sheep. Um, but I do, I do want to make clear, because I've been emphasizing the church a lot here, that just because we play a vital role doesn't mean that this isn't the work of the good shepherd. It absolutely is. I put a, I put a quote from J.I. Packer in your notes. It says, the preacher should work to convert his congregation. The wife should work to save her unbelieving husband. Christians are sent to convert, and they should not allow themselves as Christ's representatives in the world to aim at anything less. We are Christ's representatives, not his substitutes. In fact, this is kind of it's an amazing picture, and I still don't fully have my head wrapped around it, but I, I mentioned earlier that the shepherd gets his sheep through his sheep. And that's, that's true, but it's not really the, the sum total picture the Bible paints. Remember, the church is the body of Christ. So while it's true that the shepherd gets his sheep through his sheep, it's also true to say that when he does, it's, it's his own body doing it. It's, it's the shepherd getting his sheep not through disconnected individuals, but himself through his body. The church is, in a wonderful, amazing, inconceivable way, an extension of Jesus. And so amazingly, our participation in God's saving work is simultaneously God's working in the world. So our evangelism is not just me talking to my neighbor one day. It's not just me um, um, uh, trying to to save a person from hell. It, it It is... part of a really gigantic and beautiful and amazing picture of what God is doing in this world. And I think it's critical for us to see this overall context, because otherwise evangelism can be so easy to to relegate to a a box that we check or something we're supposed to be doing. But when we see this bigger, larger picture, we are motivated, at least I hope we're all motivated, to want to participate in it all the more. (sighs) That was a lot. Questions, comments? Craig, did I touch on what you wanted me to touch on? Yes, thank you. Perfect, okay, good. Other questions, comments? Does anyone want to add anything? You can argue with me too, that's okay. Lindsay. That's a that's a great way of putting it. Absolutely, we, you cannot help but proclaim him. You exist. Your existence itself is a proclamation. Our gathering here is a proclamation, and that should overflow into actually proclaiming him with our lips. But it's just it's it's baked into who we are and what we do. Yeah, great point,
1: Craig. Related to the gospel message in several places, both in the uh, the gospels and the epistles, they talk about preaching the gospel of the kingdom and where. Where Paul was persecuted, treating that one passage that they shared for preaching that gospel, which was in contradiction to the Gospel of Augustus. My understanding is in degree that that evangelium that, that gospel message, that Christians were uh, sent to the state, killed, martyred, gruesome deaths because they proclaimed Christ as Lord, and they weren't willing to say that Caesar was Lord. Mm-hmm. And are you going to be getting into that, and particularly as that ties into you know, the Great Commission, where we are to uh, teach the nations, that uh, isn't there ultimately a, um, a national implication in terms of the gospel, and that, of course, it flows from the church, but are you going to be touching on these things, and that gospel of the kingdom, and the kingdom message as it relates to our evangelism?
0: So, uh, two parts to that, uh, the latter part being as it relates to implications for the nations, probably outside the scope of, of the course. The first part, the bigger part of that, the, um, the gospel message itself, absolutely. The uh, fifth class in this is specifically on the gospel message, and we'll be looking at what the gospel is and what it isn't, what the examples and scriptures are of, of, of how we ought to preach and what that looks like, so 100%, 100%. Um, And happy to have a conversation offline if there's a way to improve that class or or add content. I'm all ears. Thank you for bringing it up. Other questions or? Yes, please. Sure, sure. Praise God. That's awesome. All right. I'll uh, move on. Is that okay? Excellent. All right. So our um, second to last objective is uh, seeing who directs the body. So it is the good shepherd who gets his sheep. He gets his sheep using his sheep, but... Do not mistake it. It is fundamentally the Lord that directs the work where He wills. Um, and so this is where I am going to ask for some help. Um, actually, no, I got four minutes, so never mind. I'm gonna read you some verses. Um, I'm pull out my electronic Bible. Um, all right, so there's a couple of questions there in your notes. Um, And what I want to do is I want to just walk through a couple passages in Acts to show you that this is fundamentally God's work. This is fundamentally something that he is directing as he wills, how he wills. So first question there is, what caused the gospel to spread from Jerusalem? Jerusalem. So we already read Acts 1.8. We know that Jesus said that the disciples are going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. But what ultimately caused that, literally up until uh, the, the first seven chapters in Acts, they're just kind of sitting there in Jerusalem. And they're, they're, they're doing a, a fantastic job. The church is growing. Uh, sanctification is occurring. But they haven't actually fulfilled that mission in any way, shape, or form. Um, Acts 8.1, though, says... Acts 8 1. Um, (laughs) Saul was in hearty agreement to putting this Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And so, it's not accidental. That when a persecution came, the church was scattered through this particular area. This is what the Lord wanted to happen. This is what He said would happen. This is how He is directing His church. The church was scattered because of persecution. They were scattered into uh, Judea and Samaria, and it was fully in, in within the, the, the sovereign providence of God. I think it's kind of funny that this is Acts 8:1 and it's the opposite of 1:8. I mean, there's no there's no significance to that whatsoever. But it's you know just kind of funny. Um, Acts uh, 10, 1 through 8 is the next passage. So what prompted the inclusion of the Gentiles? Um, so there we read in, in Acts 10, 1 through 8, there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion uh, of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, And fixing his gaze on him, and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa, and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel was speaking to him left, he summoned two of his servants, and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he explained everything to them, he sent them on to Joppa. The inclusion of the Gentiles in the church came about when God wanted it to. God sent an angel to Cornelius and ultimately dispatched Peter to him. Uh, We already uh, looked at this, but Acts 13, uh, what started Paul on his missionary journeys? It was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, in his timing, selected Paul and sent Paul out. Um, Acts 16 is next. Who controlled where Paul went? Acts 16: 4 through 10. Um, Now, while they were passing through the cities, uh, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the disciple, the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith. They were increasing in number daily. They passed through the, Phryg- uh, the Phrygian and Galatian regions, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Uh, so again, um, I can keep going. But again, the point is, is that the Lord was explicit. Don't go there. Go here instead. Um, the Lord controlled ultimately where Paul went in his mission. Um, who controlled how long Paul stayed in a given place? Acts 18, 5 to 17. Um So when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named uh, uh, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, uh, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in the city. So does that mean... Uh, don't worry about it. I've got like 50,000 Christians here. You did a great job preaching. They're going to form a posse and keep you safe. No, that's not what that means. Uh, we, we keep on reading and we see that. So Paul settles there a year and six months teaching the word. And then verse 12, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. There was no posse that stopped that from happening. There was no massive people who said, uh, Paul, uh, don't, don't take Paul, he's our guy. Didn't happen. Uh, They bring him before the judgment seat, verse 13, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of a wrong or vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names of your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Thosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat, but Galileo was not concerned with any of these things. So what was it that saved Paul from this apparent persecution? Totally God working through Galileo. This was, this was not—so when God says, I've got many people in this city, he's not telling Paul, don't worry about it. There's a group of people here who can protect you. He's saying, Paul, sit here, camp here, and preach. I will protect you while you bring in the people that I am choosing to bring in in this city. God controlled how long Paul stayed in a specific place for the purposes of the mission— And these passages taken together, Luke paints a really, really clear picture. Missions are entirely God's endeavor. Our evangelism, both big and small, is ultimately God's endeavor. It's one that he's chosen to work through his servants, but it is fundamentally God's work. Which brings us to our final point this morning. Uh, What does this mean for us? Well, number one, fundamentally, this is just valuable for us to understand. But two... If this isn't our mission, we need to make sure that we are getting the sheep the way the Good Shepherd wants. If this isn't our mission, we need to make sure that we're getting the sheep the way the Good Shepherd wants. There's a passage we're coming back to over and over again in this class, but 2 Corinthians 5, 20-21, Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, Verse 21 is an oft-quoted text. It's a great text. We're going to go into the details of what Paul means there in the future. But essentially, it's Paul explaining the gospel. He is saying we are ambassadors, we are making an appeal. And verse 21 is the substance of that appeal. But we're going to focus on verse 20, where Paul says that we are God's ambassadors. This is not the first time that Paul makes that claim. He does so in Ephesians 6 as well. Um, We are God's ambassadors. This is God's work. We are his representatives, and we ought to conduct ourselves accordingly. Um, In fact, that's why Paul says in verse 20, it is God making an appeal through us. It's still fundamentally God doing it. and there are four. And I'm going to try to close quickly, but there are four implications of this ambassadorial status in your notes. Four implications of our being an ambassador and what it means for our personal evangelism. Trying to apply what we learned this morning. And the first one there is, as ambassadors, we need to view the world through the lens of our mission. Um, so beating this analogy to death, you know, if I'm if I'm literally the ambassador sent to say, you know, China or Canada. I'm gonna be looking at what is around me in a different way than you would if you were on vacation there. Uh, You might be looking at the news, wanting to check out the weather, um, checking out traffic conditions. I'm looking at it to see what's going on in the world, what I might need to deal with, trade conditions, those sorts of things. We're looking at the same media report, but we're looking at it very, very differently. I'm looking at this in light of the mission that I'm on. You're on vacation. In the same way, as God's ambassadors, we should be looking at our mission in this world the way God does. We should be looking at our interactions with our neighbors and family and friends in the context of the local church's privileged place of evangelism and our, uh, our, our you know, our, our existence uh, in proclaiming who God is. Second, as ambassadors, we need to get the message right. Um, it would be a terrible thing if, again, I was sent as an ambassador to China and I worked out a deal that was entirely antithetical to what my government wanted. Uh, I should be fired right on the spot if that were to happen. I should be mouthing what my uh, sovereign government is asking me to say. In the same way, we have a message to preach. We don't get to deviate from the message. We don't get to make up alternate ways of saying it. We ought to be faithful to the message that we're given. It's not our mission. It's his. Um, Remember, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. God is making his appeal through us. If we get the message wrong, if we completely screw up what that message is, there's there's no voice for the sheep to hear. Um, What we need to do is be a faithful sounding board for god's voice we need to be a faithful sounding board we proclaim the message the sheep hear the voice and they come in that's what we're supposed to be doing and we don't do anything other than that third we need to represent our sovereign well again it's his mission we are fellow laborers in it and we ought to represent him well and specifically Again, ambassador example. If I'm the ambassador to Mexico and I went out every night and just got drunk and started picking bar fights and and, and, and and slandered my country, this would be a bad thing. In the same way, we want to keep our conduct on this mission well. So the gospel and our savior isn't slandered. And fourthly and finally, as ambassadors, we need to follow the rules our master set out for us. It does not I'm not This is not the same thing as talking about behaving ourselves. That was the third point. This is more our Lord has laid out not just the message we ought to preach, but how we ought to be conducting ourselves as we do it. Um, We are sent out to invite the world to be reconciled. He's given us prayer to empower our preaching and to make us faithful. He has given us scripture to guide what we say and to help us say it. And he has told us that he is the one who ultimately brings about fruit and not us. So our job is to be faithful to those things. And the coming weeks, we'll be exploring those in detail. We do not invent new ways of preaching Christ. We do not try to force or manipulate or trick someone into believing. And we do not need to create systems or programs to try to convert people. We are simply faithful to that message. So that is the overall context for evangelism. Next week is all going to be on the sovereignty of God. Uh, We are going to see that not only is it his mission, but he is inexorably, 100% bringing it to completion. Any questions? No? All right, let's pray and uh, we can be done. Lord, we thank you for this privileged place to be able to talk about evangelism, which means that we know you in the first place. It is a gift to be your people, to be a temple, to be a royal priesthood, to be a people for your own possession. These are gifts, Lord, and we thank you for them. Lord, we pray that those gifts would inspire us to preach your gospel. We thank you for this larger picture that we've seen this morning, and I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged and humbled and motivated to see our Lord and Savior lifted up, and it's in his name I pray, Lord. Amen.